0: Hello, Internet friend. Today we begin a new series, The Producers and the Financers. In this series, we track the evolution of this country's economy from an industrial production-centered one to today's finance-focused economy. It's a transition that I've been fortunate to see for over half a century. Right out of college, I began my career as a stockbroker with the old-line firm of E.F. Hutton. And although I've had many positions since then, it's always been within what's now called the financial services industry. When I began, finance and investing were just a sideline for the wealthy. By and large, average Americans didn't even consider buying stocks or bonds, much less the various new investment products that are available. Today, of course, that's all changed. Seemingly, everyone has a retirement account and all invest in some financial assets, Investment firms like Fidelity, Schwab, Vanguard, and BlackRock are among the most powerful and influential in the world. Follow me, then, as we explore how America became preoccupied with finance. How, in a very real sense, we are all now financers. Here, then, Chapter 1. Well, whether by luck or fate... This nation was founded in the same year that Adam Smith wrote his magnum opus on the wealth of nations. Now many of us consider Smith the most significant economist of all time. After all, he invented the discipline. Before Smith, rudimentary commercial activity was not considered something that people should spend time to study. Day-to-day commerce just happened without any rhyme or reason. But Smith changed all that. By framing his discussion around a method for countries to accumulate wealth, Smith built an intellectual framework that nations could follow to secure lasting prosperity. To reduce Smith's formula to a word, for Smith, the way to wealth and a rising standard of living was production. Countries could become self-sufficient and wealthy by making things and manufacturing the goods and products needed for everyday life. As their manufacturing became streamlined and efficient and utilized the latest machinery and production methods, their wealth would grow. By providing those items that people used on a daily basis, it would raise everyone's overall standard of life. To the newly formed United States, Smith provided the formula upon which America would follow to become the most extraordinary industrial and commercial country of its time. Many of the founding fathers were avid readers of Smith. James Madison nominated The Wealth of Nations to be included in the newly formed Congressional Library, while Thomas Jefferson called it the best book on economics yet in existence. Although at the time, the nation's founders did not agree on Smith's global trade policies, Smith would apply substantial tariffs while the founders essentially wanted to trade to be free, The country's early leaders would later change that position on tariffs, and they would become a chief source of income for the fledgling nation. But one thing they were certain of, from the beginning, America's first leaders set the country solidly on Smith's path of promoting self-sufficient production. The American economy was designed to make, build, and grow its prosperity. But even in these halcyon days of emerging national independence and growing economic prosperity, there was a crying need for some financial structure to rein in America's quest for liberty. Alexander Hamilton, the country's first treasury secretary, had trouble paying the government's bills. Reluctant to levy taxes directly on the people, the nation's leaders eventually did decide to charge those tariffs on international trade as the fairest and most equitable method of raising revenue. But how Hamilton would administer those tariffs and pay the nation's debt was still unclear. After ten years of wrangling, George Washington and the others acceded to Hamilton's proposal to form a national bank. Thus, the first bank of the United States was chartered in 1791. However, I caution you to avoid making the mistake that many have, in thinking that the first bank of the United States, or for that matter, the second bank, in any way resembles the concept of today's Federal Reserve. A central bank that guided monetary policy or economic growth was anathema to Hamilton or the others. Hamilton believed that promoting the Americans' economy and growth was solely the U.S. Treasury's role. Now, 10 years after it began, the First Bank of the United States met an ignoble end. The First Bank was inefficient and had little benefit for the American government or the people in the end, and a decade after it began, the Second Bank of the United States began in its place, and thus began one of the most fascinating chapters in Americans' financial history. It was called the Bank War. So let's set the stage. For 50 years, Americans had grown and prospered, essentially without a central bank at all. But there were circles within America pushing for a more English approach to our finances. The Bank of England had operated over a century and gave the English the unified currency of the British pound. It greatly facilitated their country's international trade. While in the States, several national banks had been chartered each with their own ability to issue currency. So trade, even between the different states, was brutal, much less trade outside of our borders. So was the answer to the nation's financial issue a national bank? Certainly not, to a rising politician from Tennessee named Old Hickory for his ramrod demeanor and strong opinion. His name was Andrew Jackson, and he rode into Washington in 1829 as the nation's seventh president. Reminiscent of a former president and current presidential candidate, Jackson is one of the most controversial politicians in American history. A decorated general who was also a lawyer and a plantation owner, he was also a slave-owning Southern gentleman who had built his own financial empire, including a vast plantation. By his death in 1845, Jackson's estate consisted of one of the most extensive cotton plantations in Tennessee, over a thousand acres under cultivation, primarily managed by the 150 enslaved people who were there. Now along the way, Jackson narrowly escaped personal bankruptcy when in 1804 he speculated on a purchase of 25,000 acres of land using a promissory note as collateral. And when the bank failed to honor that note, Jackson scrambled to sell the ground shortly before the bankruptcy court could have foreclosed. Many historians point to this moment as the moment that Jackson turned against the banks. That may be the case. Or like Adam Smith, Jackson's upbringing as a frugal Presbyterian Scotsman predisposed him to avoid debt. But whatever the reason. Jackson's anti-financer stance resonated with the American people. The people saw the bank favoring speculators and merchants over the artisans and farmers. They considered it a clear case of favoring the financial interests over the producers. Jackson became the average man's hero and America's first populist president. Now, in the end, Jackson used the same strategy on the second bank of the United States that had worked so well on the first bank. He simply let the charter expire. Thus, the second great financial takeover of the American economy had ended. So from the nation's founding until 1913, with two very ineffectual exceptions, America was without a central bank. Many financial historians call this period the non-bank period in American history. But it was much more than that. From 1776 until 1930, it was the production class that held sway. The foundations that would create the greatest nation on earth were being laid then. Now, many have labeled this period as America's Industrial Revolution. Technological advances in manufacturing... Energy production, transportation, and communication occurred. Giants in production have their names attached to remarkable inventions associated with the nation's newfound ability to make things, to produce. In 1793, Eli Whitney invented the cotton gym. Samuel Slater opened the first textile manufacturer in America the following year. Andrew Jackson called Slater the father of the American Industrial Revolution. Mass-produced clothing was now available to everyone. In 1807, the first of Robert Fulton's steam-powered boats began taking passengers from New York to Albany on the Hudson River. Ten years later, those same steamboats took raw materials and products from the Atlantic to the Great Lakes using the newly completed Erie Canal. It opened up the entire Mid-Atlantic region to create the great industrial centers of Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, and beyond. In 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. American industry had tamed the continent. It united the nation like never before. It was now practical to move people and products from coast to coast then John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil discovered oil in Texas in 1870, and America was energy independent for a century. All these advances, and so much more, were all part of the time of the producers, when industry built the foundation of a modern America. But much of this industrial vibrancy began to fade with the dawning of the 20th century. Shortly after the 20th century began in 1913, a new America era started, the era of the financers. And they would compete with the manufacturing sector for America's investments and resources. Meeting in complete secrecy at Jekyll Island, six men devised an American central bank. They knew enough of history and how Andrew Jackson had crushed the last attempt at a central bank, that they cunningly named this new organization the Federal Reserve Board, not bank. And so, for the first time in 137 years, the United States would have a genuine supervising central bank, a boon to some and a replica of the English system. Now, it didn't take long for things to change in the country dramatically. Like those Jackson supporters feared in 1829, The financers tilted the scale. Speculators and merchants would get preferential treatment over the artisans and farmers, just like the people predicted way back in Andrew Jackson's time. It was the beginning of Wall Street's dominance over Main Street. And that's today's Value Side, the producers and the financers. For all of our articles and podcasts, visit valueside.com. I'm David Ravel. ValueSide is independently written and researched. The views expressed are strictly my own.